Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Psalms uh, 9 uh, and 10, uh, two psalms that many think belong together as they form an acrostic uh, between the two of them with many shared themes. And uh, Psalm 10 is one of the only psalms in Book 1 that doesn't have a superscription, leading many to conclude that it belongs with, with Psalm 9. So the Greek Septuagint in the Latin Vulgate um, took these two psalms, and so we'll take them together this afternoon, understanding that not a whole lot rests on that debate, even if they are to be separate. The, the Spirit has placed them next to each other, that we might uh, read them one after the other. And so that's what we'll do this afternoon, Psalms 9 and 10, to the choir master. According to Muth Laban, a psalm of David, he says, I will give thanks To the Lord with my whole heart, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities, you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you, who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Why, O Lord? You stand far away. Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught of the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. All, or as for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. 
under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands to you. The helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. As far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Irrigation, one of the, the reasons... Uh, why we as Reformed Christians are committed to expository preaching through uh, books of the Bible is, is because it models for God's people what we're to be doing in our, our day-to-day lives. As we work our way chapter by chapter through books of, of the Bible, we're, we're modeling how to read a text carefully, how to read it in light of Christ, and how to then seek to apply it. And one of the keys to to reading a text carefully is is to make observations about repeated themes and uh, somewhat surprising statements or or curious details to to ask questions. Uh, Why does does the author say that? Why does he he use that word? Why does he he keep repeating that word? And I actually think with with the Psalms that one of the reasons why perhaps some of us can sometimes view them as as just being repetitive or we we can uh, think to ourselves that they're just saying the same thing over and over is is maybe because we're not always the most careful readers. We don't ask questions and and read a Psalm carefully, seeing that each one is unique and it's it's distinct contribution to the Christian life, it's it's distinct placement within the Psalter, and it's distinct testimony to the person and work of Christ. And and so as we seek this afternoon to be careful readers and uh, make some some observations about this pair of Psalms or, or single Psalm, depending on how you view it, what are, what are some repeated themes or interesting details that David includes? I think one of the more striking things is this emphasis on God as king. You notice in verse 4 of, of chapter 9 how God is sitting on a throne. Again, in verse 7, it says that he is enthroned forever. In verse 11, it says he sits enthroned in Zion. And then as we move into chapter 10, David comes back to this same theme at the end of this pair of Psalms saying that God is king forever and ever. 
David wants us to understand the kingship of Yahweh. But not just his kingship also, and I would say especially, that he is a just king. There's that that emphasis throughout on the justice of God. Again, in 9 verse 4, it says that he maintains David's just cause, giving righteous judgment. 9 verse 7, it says that his throne is justice. In fact, it says that he has established his throne for, meaning the the purpose of why he has established his throne is to bring justice. Verse 8, he judges the peoples with righteousness and uprightness. In 10 verse 5, he speaks of God's judgments. And then at the end of the psalm, in 1018, how God does justice for the fatherless and the oppressed. There is an emphasis throughout on the justice of the king. And especially toward the afflicted, the weak, the poor, and, and the needy. You see this in 9 verse 12, that he is mindful of them. This is, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. 9 verse 13, uh, David again mentions affliction, though this time of, of himself. He says in verse 18 that the needy shall not be forgotten. That's the same word that's, that's later translated afflicted. See it in um, chapter 10, they hotly, uh, uh, hotly pursue the, the poor and seize them in verse 2, and again in verse 9, See that's, that's that, that same word for afflicted, which then comes up again in verse 12 and in verse 17, eight times in these two chapters, we see these two Hebrew words for afflicted. And, and so as we note all of these repeated themes, As we we try to put all of this together, we come to see that the unique contribution of Psalms 9 and 10 is to help us understand God's kingship and his justice toward his children who were afflicted. His kingship and justice towards his children who were afflicted. The movement of of the psalm is, is that it begins with David recounting God's justice in the past and praising him for it. And then after that, praising God for, for, or praying for God's justice in the present. And then by the end, he is praising God for his justice in the future. And so we see praise for God's justice in the past, praying for God's justice in the present, and praising God for his justice in the future. Look at me first at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 9, where uh, David praises God's justice in the past. Notice verse 1, he says that he will give thanks to God with his whole heart, and he will recount all of God's wonderful deeds. He will be glad and exult in them and sing praise to his name. That this praise is for God's wonderful deeds of verse 1, which are then spelled out for us in verses 3 through 12, and focus on the exercise of God's justice against the wicked in favor of of the afflicted. So the first thing that, that we see from this is that justice is a proper object of satisfaction to the godly, and it is a, a proper subject of praise. As I mentioned earlier, unlike much of, of what is often sung in the church of the 21st century, David the psalmist teaches us to praise God for his justice, and to praise him for his past acts of justice. Which he details, beginning in verse 3, how his enemies have stumbled and perished before God's presence. Boys and girls, maybe we can, we can think of, of 
uh, past enemies of David's like, like Goliath or, or other enemies, how God maintained David's just cause and he sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Verse 5, rebuking these enemies of God's kingdom and, and making them perish, rooting out their cities and bringing them to ruin. David says this is part of those wonderful deeds of verse 1, a result of God's just reign of verse 7. He sits enthroned forever on a throne of justice, judging the world with righteousness and the peoples with uprightness. Being a stronghold for the oppressed in times of trouble so that those who know God's name might put their trust in him and not be forsaken. For all of this, David sings praise, verse 11, to God who sits enthroned in Zion and he calls his subjects to to tell of God's wonderful deeds to tell of his justice, and how he who avenges blood is mindful of the afflicted and does not forget their cry. Perhaps we can just pause for a moment there and think about what what an encouragement a verse like this must be to our our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world, that that the, the Lord is the one who avenges blood and he is mindful of the afflicted and he doesn't forget their cry. That's the main point of these these first 12 verses, that the king who judges justly is mindful of the afflicted, and he doesn't forget their cry. Can we see how this is something to sing about? Do you see why why David calls us to, to tell of this among the peoples? Because it's good news that God isn't deaf to the cries of his weary people. But unlike many kings and and governments of this world, he hears and will avenge their blood against those who afflict them. That phrase is actually a reference back to Genesis chapter 9 where where God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, his blood will be shed for man is made in God's image. And so there is a broad universal aspect here where, where God takes notice of the affliction of all men and will bring justice And then there is a more specific sense in which, verse 10, God cares in a special way for his children. You say we we see common grace toward all men and paternal grace toward God's children. He avenges the blood of all the afflicted who were made in his image and is especially mindful of his own children when they're afflicted. We're, We're to see here not only the justice, but the grace, mercy, and loving kindness of the king, which are not separate, but, but, but rather are two sides of the same coin. When, when God hears the cries of the afflicted and brings justice against their adversaries, he is not only exercising his righteous rule, but in that righteous rule, showing grace and mercy to those in need. In one and the same act, we see justice and we see mercy as at the cross of Christ and at his return to judge the living and the dead in both, we see justice and we see mercy come together. As, as the psalmist says in Psalm 85, justice and mercy kiss. Justice and mercy worth singing about, worth proclaiming among the peoples and praising God for his justice. But not only that, also worth praying for more of which is what David does in the next section of the psalm as he moves from from praising God's justice and mercy in the past to now uh, praying for God's justice and mercy 
in the present. Perhaps we, we see there a little help in our own prayers, that it's in reflecting on what God has done in the past that, that we are, are um, helped in, in uh, knowing what to trust and believe and pray for in the present. David moves from praising God's justice and mercy in the past and now praying for God's justice and mercy in the present. And if you're following along, taking notes, you, you might notice that. Just, just note justice in those three points in the outline, but it's, it's, it's helpful to remember throughout that in exercising his justice against the wicked, God is showing mercy to the afflicted. Perhaps you might even add that in there. Every, every time in this psalm in which we see the justice of God, we see also the mercy of God. And in verse 13 now, David identifies himself in that category of of the afflicted who desire God's mercy. Or I said it's good to to take notice of of the details, to to notice these repeated words and themes. And and again, one of them is this word for affliction or afflicted, where in verse 12, David speaks of how God doesn't forget the cry of the afflicted. And then what does he say in verse 13? But see my affliction. So what he's doing, he's, he's placing himself in the category of those who are afflicted and, and oppressed and need God to intervene. We need God to avenge the wrong that's been done to him and, and not forget his cry. In verse 13, to be gracious to him and see how he is near the gates of death because of those who hate him. As David has, has recounted God's mighty acts in the past, as he has rehearsed God's heart for the oppressed, and especially those who are his people, he says, Lord, lift me up from the gates of death. Verse 14, transport me to the gates of Zion, that I may rejoice in your salvation and recount your praise. He wants God to move him from the gates of death to the gates of Zion. And again, the goal is God's glory. He wants God to save him so that he might sing of his salvation in the gates of of Zion, that is, with with the gathered people of God. He might recount God's wonderful deeds in saving the king and bringing him up from the gates of death. Which should sound familiar to us as as David here is is something of a type, being, being raised up from the gates of death. And he wants to be able to sing of it. He, he wants to be able to tell of God's deeds among the peoples and sing praise to God who is enthroned in Zion. Verses 15 to 18, to sing of other nations who opposed God's king and God's kingdom. Think Psalm 2. Have sunk in the pit that they've made, their own wicked counsel coming back upon them, their feet being caught in the net that they've hid, being snared in the work of their own hands. David longs to sing of God, making himself known by executing judgment in that way. I'm doing what Psalm 2 says and exalting his Davidic king with the nation's rage and people's plot in vain against him and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He longs for the wicked who have brought him down to the gates of death to return to Sheol. Maybe that, that sounds a little bit um, harsh for your, your sensitivities, but, but notice how, how all that David asks is for God to do to them what they have sought to do to him. His prayer is in keeping with, with the biblical principles of justice. And, and verse 17 is concerned ultimately with the glory of God. It's those who have forgotten God and so acted in this way against the king that he longs to see judged. 
assuring God's people that the needy will not be forgotten and the hope of the poor will not perish forever. And again, that word for poor is one of those two words translated elsewhere in the psalm, afflicted. David wants God to act in such a way that he will demonstrate in his case the truth of verse 12, that God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And so he prays, O Lord, arise, do not let man prevail, but let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear that they might know that they are but men. The way that he asks God to put them in fear uh, sounds a lot like Psalm 2.5, where he who sits in heaven will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. It has here in Psalm 9, so there in Psalm 2, it's, it's the nations who are plotting against the, the king that David speaks of. He doesn't want them to prevail, but, but recognizes, verse 20, that their hatred for God's king is ultimately rebellion against God. And so he says, remind them that they are men and you are God. Bring justice for your glory, Lord, that you might be praised. That's what he prays in verses 13 through 20. By the way, just a couple of maybe helpful little nuggets on that. So often in, in these psalms, when we come to the, 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 these psalms of justice, what theologians call the, the imprecatory psalms, uh, first of all, David is praying them as the Lord's anointed, as, as king. And so this is not just some, some uh, egotistical maniac who's, who's so self-obsessed that anyone who crosses him or anyone who, who cuts him off on his, his chariot um, it needs to go down to the gates of Sheol. But this is the Lord's anointed. This is the king, and so as they cross the Lord's king, as they rebel against him, they are rebelling against the one he represents, God and his kingdom. And then second, the other thing that's so helpful for us to recognize is is, uh, throughout how how David's chief concern is the glory of God. This is not just about him getting even. This is about God being glorified. And so he prays for just that in verses 13 through 20. As we move into Psalm 10, we see that God does not appear to answer. As the very first words we we read in Psalm 10.1 are, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you appear to hide yourself in times of trouble? Again, that phrase for times of trouble actually came up back in 9 verse 9. There, David said that the Lord is a stronghold in times of trouble. But here, the Lord is absent in times of trouble. He appears to be hiding himself. As the Davidic king is brought near the gates of death, but God apparently doesn't intervene. And so now the suffering of the king overflows to his faithful subjects who are hotly pursued in verse 2. They are cursed and and, and deceived and oppressed in verse 7. And mischief and iniquity are under the tongues of the wicked and the proud who hate them. They're maliciously slandering them. And in verse 8 it says that they sit in ambush in the villages in order to murder the innocent. Their eyes stealthily watching for the helpless. They lurk in ambush like a lion to seize the poor who are, who are drawn into their net. And so the helpless are crushed and, and sink down, and they fall by the might of the wicked who think, verse 11, that God has forgotten. Remember back in 9, verse 12, David says that God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. 9, verse 18, the needy shall not be forgotten. But here the wicked say that God has forgotten. 
that he has hidden his face from the helpless who are crushed by the wicked and forgets their cry. That's the claim. And for David in 10 verse 1, that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like for the helpless and the oppressed in verses 2 through 10, that God has forgotten their cry and has hidden his face in times of trouble. And in that way, these verses give voice to our lament when we too feel that God is is far off and, and doesn't see the evil that's been done to us. God gives us psalms like this to pray in those moments when he feels distant because he knows how we feel. And even in that, in the fact that he knows how we feel and therefore gives us psalms like Psalm 10 or Psalm 6 or Psalm 13 or Psalm 22, and the fact that God even gives us psalms like this, we see evidence that he has not forgotten us. Because he gives us these psalms to pray in those moments of sadness and lament and fear and anxiety and disorientation, showing us in giving us those psalms that he has not forgotten which David knows to be true despite how he feels in in 10 verse 1, despite what the wicked say in 10 verse 11. And and so in verse 12, he calls on God to arise and to lift up his hand, forgetting not the afflicted, which now is in the plural. Because David the king cares not only for himself, but for all the helpless and afflicted, verses 2 through 10. He prays that God would not forget them, but verse 13 would call to account the wicked who have renounced God and so treated his image bearers and his children in this way. In verse 14, take notice of their trouble and grief and avenge. He says, as the head of his people, to you, Lord, the helpless commits himself, for you are a helper to the fatherless. You are a kind and gracious and loving and gentle and good father who hears the cries of your people and therefore will lift up your hand and break the arm of the wicked. It's another one of those phrases we see throughout the Psalms that can be a bit troubling, perhaps, about breaking the arm of the wicked. What he's saying is, is, Lord, they're using their arms and their fists to, to cause trouble and to hurt and destroy and afflict. So, so disarm their power. Make it so they can't do that anymore. Psalm 58 uh, uses similar language uh, about um, the Lord breaking the teeth of the oppressor. Actually, Job uses that same language too. And what he's speaking of is, is those ferocious animals who have Christ's little lambs in, in between their teeth. And so by breaking their teeth, they are disarmed so that they might no longer use them to hurt. That's what David is praying for here. He recognizes that God is a father to the fatherless, a helper to the orphan, as we sang, and therefore he will lift up his hand and break the arm of the wicked. Do you see how God being a helper to the fatherless, God being a loving father in verse 14, leads to him doing what any loving father would do when his child's life is in danger. He disarms the power of those who seek to destroy them, and he calls them to account. So again, we see the love and justice of the king as two sides of the same coin, which is precisely what David praises him for then, In these last three verses where he looks ahead as a prophet at the time when God will answer his prayer in the future as he has in the past and bring justice. 
All of this is, is moving towards this doxology of praise in verses 16 through 18, where all of these themes of, of God's kingship and justice and, and concern for the afflicted come together as David looks to the day when God's perfect justice will be established forever and ever, and the nations, that is, the wicked who plot against God's kingdom, will perish from the land. David is looking ahead to a day when the wicked who oppose God's kingdom will no longer exist. Can you hear the the eschatological overtones of of those last three verses? Eschatological meaning um, concerning the end, the the future, the time when when God's perfect kingdom of verse 16 will be established forever. David is here speaking as a prophet, looking ahead to the day when God's perfect justice will be established for all to see, and man who is of the earth will strike terror no more. He's looking ahead of the day when every wrong will be made right, the the wicked will be no more, and this earth will no longer be struck by terror, but ruled with perfect justice and, and perfect righteousness and perfect peace in the age to come when God will exalt his kingdom through a man of his own choosing from David's own line. As throughout the Psalter, this, this vision of God's forever kingdom where the afflicted, the fatherless, and the oppressed will have their hearts strengthened as, as that theme will, will merge the expectation of a king from David's own line. As we sang in Psalm 72, will judge the peoples with righteousness and the poor with justice. He will crush the oppressor and have pity on the weak. He will save the lives of the needy and he will redeem their lives from oppression and violence for their blood is precious in his sight. Throughout the Psalter, this vision of God's divine kingdom and the messianic hope of a king from David's line will merge so that the vision of Psalms 9 and 10 is realized in God's own son. The king who, like David, would be afflicted by those who hate him being brought down to the gates of death. But God would raise him up to recount his praise among the peoples and become that forever king of Psalm 10, 16, who hears the desires of the afflicted and knows them well because he suffered like us and strengthens our hearts as he inclines his ear towards us and brings justice. Christ is both the the typological fulfillment of David's suffering unto glory and the the prophetic realization of his longing for that latter-day kingdom when God himself will rule in perfect righteousness with justice for the fatherless and oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. In Christ, that perfect kingdom is coming. In Christ, this this perfect justice was was demonstrated in his care for the afflicted throughout his earthly ministry. And in Christ, though every wrong is not yet made right, you have an assurance that God will vindicate you. Because for those who are united to him by faith, what's true of him is true of you. He will lift you up and put a song of praise in your mouth and wipe away your tears. And until then, he will hear your prayers and not forget your cry as one who knows your suffering better than you could ever imagine because he has stood where David stood and where you stand. Knows the feeling of God hiding himself in times of trouble or of that enemy hiding like a lion to seize him. He knows what it's like when wicked men sit in ambush to destroy him, even wicked men from within the covenant community, the visible church. 
It's one of the interesting things about Psalm 10 is that it appears to be those who know God but have have renounced him in their heart who are committing these evils. Those within Israel who, verse 8, dwell in the villages of God's people. Verse 3, who have renounced the Lord. These These are members of God's covenant people committing great evils. Chapter 9, the nations. But in chapter 10, the, the church. And Christ knew both kinds of injustice. You think of, of wicked Gentiles like Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers, but also members of the covenant community who plotted against him like ravenous lions. He knew both kinds of injustice and so is able to sympathize both with his, his persecuted saints in Libya and Egypt and Sudan and North Korea and China also those who suffer because of injustices done to them even by God's people. Chapter 10 reminds us that such things happen. But then also reminds us that God does not approve, that he does see, and that he will bring justice. So look at that list of sins in those first eight or so verses in chapter 10. It, it addresses the physical violence and abuse that some people endure, the deceit, cursing and verbal assault. It, it addresses the full range of suffering that God's people and even those who are not his people endure. It reminds us that he cares and it lifts our eyes heavenward to the coming again of that perfect king who will rule with perfect justice forever. So if you don't know him, but you are among those wicked who this psalm describes, then flee to him for refuge, repenting of your sins and looking to his cross and resurrection as your only hope. If you do know him, trust that he hears your cries and doesn't forget them, but knows. And one day will consummate his forever kingdom where justice will be his throne. The wicked of the earth will be no more. And we will recount his praise in the gates of that heavenly Zion and rejoice in his salvation. May the Lord hasten that day. May he make us more and more to long for it. And may he comfort us with the promise that it's coming. The king who judges justly is coming again. That he hears the cry of the afflicted and will bring justice. So don't fret as you look at the world around you. Even as you look at your own life. Look at the cross and look to Christ coming again. And trust the king who judges justly is coming. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the king, king of justice who rules in righteousness and doesn't forget the cry of the afflicted, but avenges the blood of those who are slain. We thank you for how we see that in acts of justice already now, but especially how we'll see it one day when Christ our King comes again to judge the living and the dead, to justice for the fatherless and the oppressed, and to remove from the earth those who strike terror because they hate you. Lord, we pray that you would make us more and more to long for that day to be those of of whom Paul speaks in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, when he speaks of Christians, is those who love Christ's appearing. Help us be those who pray thy kingdom come and long for justice. 
Help us then also, Lord, to be more and more shaped by it, even in this life, that we would not be like in Psalm 10, a a covenant community that harbors those who commit injustice, but even as we sing the songs of Zion, the the psalms of justice, that you would uproot liars and abusers and, and tyrants and make us to look more and more like the king whose kingdom we belong to and to be a people of justice. Lord, we pray that you would also help us to be a people of meekness, recognizing when when wrongs and evils have been done to us that we don't have to seek vengeance, but we can entrust our cause to you. We don't have to get so worked up fretting, as the psalmist says in Psalm 37, because of the evil that we see and, and our desire to have justice now. Like Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2, we can entrust our cause to the one who judges justly. And so, Lord, to that end, we pray for those who have suffered in the ways that this psalm describes, from verbal assault and slander, physical abuse or otherwise, who perhaps, because of the things that they have endured, feel that you have forgotten them or that you have hidden your face from them. Whether those be members here, gathered right now or our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world who, who at times they wonder the very things that this psalm gives voice to. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen their hearts even now with the knowledge that Christ hears and cares and will make all things right. And that you would help us to be a people, a church who cares well for the afflicted because our king is a king of justice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.